The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's very difficult, and some have argued impossible to get them out. And this is very clear in Ottawa. You know, these are not just trucks; these are entire encampments. These have supply lines. They have refueling practices. You know, just walking downtown, if you lift up any of the tarps covering some of the truck beds, you'll see days, weeks worth of food and supplies. So this is sort of the thing that other cities are trying to avoid. I'm Scott R. Anderson. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for February 11th, 2022. Over the past few weeks, Canada has been living through its own insurrectionary moment, as a series of trucker convoys have used tractor-trailer trucks to occupy much of downtown Ottawa, launch protests in other major Canadian cities, and block points of entry along the country's southern border with the United States. While nominally objecting to Canadian vaccination mandates, particularly as applied to truckers, the convoy movement has at times made even more ambitious demands, including the dissolution of the Trudeau government, and has close ties to far right-wing nationalist and ethno-nationalist organizations both in Canada and the United States. And while the convoy movement began in Canada, there are signs it is beginning to spread, with similar efforts appearing in Australia and New Zealand, and intelligence reports suggesting the same may soon happen in the United States. To put these recent developments in context, I sat down with three Canadian national security experts who have been following the convoy crisis closely. Amarnath Amarsingham, Assistant Professor at Queen's University, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor at Carleton University, and Jessica Davis, President of Insight Threat Intelligence. We discussed the origins of the convoy movement, its relationship with domestic violent extremism, and what it might mean for both Canada and the rest of the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast for February 11th. The Trucker Convoys and Domestic Unrest in Canada. Stephanie, I want to turn to you first, uh, and I want to pull back the curtain a bit for listeners as to why we're actually doing this topic for the podcast today. You were kind enough to come on another one of our podcasts, Rational Security, earlier this week, where we had set aside a 15 or 20 minute segment to talk about this topic. And after running very long on that segment with you, uh, me and my co-host sat down and had this immediate reaction, which is that this is a much bigger issue than we fully even understood with a whole lot of underappreciated intersections with what's happening in the United States uh, and what we might be able to expect happening in the United States based on what's happening in Canada, our closest neighbor and ally to the North, uh, which is why we want to bring you uh, and Amar and Jessica back today to talk about it with some more depth and some more length. But we know not all of our listeners may not have been fully cued into what exactly it is that's happening in Ottawa and has been happening for the last week or two. Can you give us just a quick overview of the situation on the ground and some of the issues it's begun to raise for Canadians, particularly for residents of the city of Ottawa? Well, thanks again for having me on. It's uh, clear this has been just an unreal, surreal time, I think, in Canadian politics. I'm not sure we've really seen anything like it in, in really kind of modern Canadian political history. 
Effectively, this is a convoy organized at its core by a group of individuals who I think it's fair to say hold conspiratorial and anti-government extremist views. Uh, they've also expressed Islamophobic, anti-Semitic sentiments in, in a lot of their commentary and a lot of their uh, political beliefs. And, and they have also tried to organize convoys. For a, a, a number of years, they were moderately successful in doing so in uh, 2019. There was a much smaller convoy, but it petered out pretty quickly and actually led to some infighting within the Canadian far right political scene. However, what seems to have been successful this time is that they were able to frame their anti-government views around the lockdowns and mandates uh, surrounding COVID-19. Just so your listeners are aware, Canada is just now coming out of its fourth lockdown. Uh, it's been very severe here. Um, we still have, uh, in most provinces, uh, mask mandates. In some provinces, you actually have to show uh, vaccine passports to get in into alcohol stores. Um, so it, it's pretty strict, right? Uh, people are still wearing masks, all these things. And Honestly, people are tired. Our, our schools have been shut down. Um, kids have been affected by this. And, and so I, I can't fault people for suddenly seeing a movement that says it's about protesting all of these lockdowns, because I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of Canadians, indeed 54% of Canadians, want to move on with their lives. We want to learn to live with COVID. Now, that's not to say 54% of Canadians agree with the tactics or, or this protest, but quite a few do, and quite a few have now made their way to Ottawa. But I think the problem is that effectively, this is an extremist movement at its core, and they're now using extremist tactics, basically in, in, in their ability to try and create change. So as a result of that, we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, they were very open about their intentions. They said, we're going to come to Ottawa. We're going to blockade Ottawa until all the mandates are taken away. And for whatever reason, that wasn't taken seriously. Uh, it, it wasn't like they were hiding. This isn't a surprise move. But for some reason, Ottawa police let them into the downtown core where they've now set up camp and refused to leave. The problem seems to be, and this is where it kind of spirals out of into kind of a slightly more incomprehensible narrative. But the fact that is that, you know, no level of government seems to be either willing or prepared to deal with this. The Ottawa police have effectively said that there's no policing solution to this crisis, uh, basically implying they want the federal government to bring the military in, which would be extremely dramatic, to put it to put it mildly. The provincial government has largely been absent. They have not really said or done anything other than a couple of tweets condemning the protest. And the federal government keeps saying it's going to send in some federal police forces, which are our Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. But we haven't even really seen these uh, police forces arrive yet. So I think this is uh, some of the, the problems is that no one really wants to take ownership of what is seen as a potentially volatile situation. And because of that, the movement itself seems to have become emboldened. As I speak, there's three ports of entry that have been um, basically either blockaded or partially blockaded, and two of which are absolute economic lifelines for the country. The As of this morning, the parts of the convoy were circling the Ottawa airport, and there are a number of convoys or attempted convoys in major Canadian cities. I believe one is set up presently in, um, in Winnipeg which is in, in, in a province called Manitoba. So by failing to crack down, this movement has become emboldened and uh, it now seems to be spreading all over the world. So that that's a lot. 
that's pretty dire, but that seems to be the history of it in a nutshell. I want to get into what the movement has become and where it may go. But first, let's dig a little bit further back in time and figure out where it's come from. Uh, Amara, let me turn to you with this. Give us a sense about who the people who are involved in this effort are. Stephanie noted that there's definitely a strong element, a leadership element centered around individuals involved with various kind of far-right movements that have coordinated and passed on certain efforts, although I don't know what to a degree that's true, whether it's separate camps. But a lot of people associate this, of course, with the truckers' convoy. There is a narrative that uh, this was rooted in grievances brought forward by truckers who are at concerned about losing their livelihoods over vaccine policies that prevent them from doing trucker routes into the United States and out of the United States, some which are U.S. policies, not Canadian policies, it's worth noting, uh, also potentially domestically in Canada. What role do those sorts of grievances play in here? Is that uh, mostly a facade or is this a more complex coalition of different interests that have come together around this particular set of actions? Yeah, no, I, I think it's the latter. I think um, there's always been a kind of, you know, populist sentiment in Canada, particularly in the West Coast. Um, and there are a lot of West Coasters um, in Ottawa at the moment. The, the, there's a kind of sense of, you know, the government in Ottawa doesn't care about us, the elite, and that includes academics, journalists, um, politicians, etc. Don't understand our concerns, don't take our concerns seriously. Um, and so that that kind of sentiment was always present in Canada bubbling below the surface. And what, what happened with COVID and, and the pushback against uh, COVID lockdown and, and COVID man- mandates um, is that uh, a lot of these separate disparate forces and movements and organizations really found a common cause, right? You, now you find them all kind of playing in the same sandbox. And so, you know, QAnon supporters, um, militia movements, far-right activists and 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 so on, as well as the vast majority of people who I think are in Ottawa, which are kind of genuinely aggrieved people with uh, with with different kinds of grievances, some of which, as as uh, Stephanie mentioned, are shared by a lot of us, right? It's that we're all kind of exhausted with with uh, with the virus and and the pandemic. But in terms of individuals, I mean, there's uh, a lot of these individuals like Jeremy McKenzie, who was one of the early organizers of this, stepped away and then came back. He goes by Raging Dissident. There's Alex uh, Vreend, who uh, goes by Ferryman's Toll, who traveled across the country on a Holocaust denial tour uh, not long ago. And and so, you know, a lot of these individuals are very active. Pat King has now um, become quite uh, influential in these spaces. Um, and so... I think what the pandemic has done is brought all these disparate individuals who uh, used to not like each other, not uh, get along, live in quite different online environments and into the same kind of common cause. And so that's why we're seeing, I think, partly uh, different voices uh, present at these rallies, different goals present at these rallies, different demands at these rallies. And I think uh, we might see in the long run these same kind of ego battles and disparate goals uh, lead to maybe uh, some sort of factionalism as well, uh, the longer this goes. One follow-on question for you, Amar, is that this tactic of the convo, which as Stephanie noted, isn't entirely new to this situation. It's been talked about in the past, although you know, perhaps in different types of applications would look somewhat differently. You know, where does that come from? Because uh, in some ways it is, I don't think it's necessarily uniquely Canadian, but it's a tactic which similar groups, at least in the United States, haven't, to my knowledge, settled on. The closest American parallel actually an astute 
lawfare uh, reader and listener noted to me in, in a conversation the other day might be actually not on the far right, but what people associate much more with the left might be the Occupy movement, the idea that you know we're claiming public space and squatting on it to enforce uh, a, a reckoning with a particular political agenda. Where do these sorts of tactics and the view of this sort of step as a legitimate step come from in this constellation of groups that have come together in this particular moment? Um, I mean, I think this particular this particular one came about largely because of the mandate that the Trudeau government tried to pass in early January, which was about in, individuals uh, who are cross-border truckers who want to go into Canada and want to go into the U.S. need to be uh, need to be vaccinated, and so this became a kind of trucker issue from as the spark. And so uh, you had the convoy uh, largely related to that, I think. But I mean, even uh, on a broader level, I think um, there is a kind of much like in the U.S., there's a kind of romanticism um, around the working class, right? About the true Americans, the coal miners, the farmers, uh, the truck drivers, etc., which is part of very much part of the conversation in Canada as well. Is that these are the people? These this is the these are the people who run Canada, who you know help the economy uh, move forward, um, and and that they're constantly victims of of these elite governments in Ottawa and elite politicians and and so on. Uh, and so there is a kind of romantic element to what the cultural working class uh, in Canada and in, in some sense the U.S. represents um, and how they're continuously victimized and, and so on. And so the, this kind of embattled identity that they, uh, that they have with them is what's, it's what's driving a lot of this populist sentiment. Jessica, let me ask you, because if I'm not mistaken, I believe you live in Ottawa. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I live right downtown. So let me turn to you then and ask you, Tell us a little bit about what the experience is like for the Ottawa resident. How is this group engaging with the city? Is this a something more akin to a sit-in, uh, you know, again, occupying this particular space? Or is there a more deliberate effort to interfere with, obstruct, make life more difficult? That goes beyond that. And I'm particularly interested in the role that violence is playing here um, in the United States, because our relationship with firearms and our Second Amendment, you know, frankly, violence is often very clearly on the surface of a lot of these political encounters, um, because you have armed groups present uh, and involved, uh, not always, but often. Is that the case here? Or is the violence much more of an implicit sort of threat? And how close has it gotten to rising to the surface thus far? Yeah, walking around downtown Ottawa is like walking through an occupation, but it's also very contained. So like I live right downtown, so I'm probably about five or six blocks outside of the core protest area when it grows to its biggest space on the weekends, because it it grows and shrinks depending on who's available and who's attending the protest. So on the biggest weekend, the protest was basically right outside my door. Um, you know, I couldn't go out of the street without seeing propaganda, trucks with Canadian flags flown upside down. Traffic was backed up through through my neighborhood. So it was a, a very real experience. And then what happens during the week is that that it shrinks back down. And the real the real problem in the downtown core, I would say, has been lack of movement for the citizens. So we have been had a really hard time getting around. A lot of people who live in the core occupied zones are fearful of going outside. There's been plenty of allegations of harassment, yelling, even some assaults, uh, particularly directed towards people wearing masks. And frankly, you know, in Ottawa, it's not all that common for people to wear masks outside. Um, 
you know, I think we've got a pretty good understanding of how the virus is transmitted. So, you know, we go outside without masks, but in the downtown core, that's no longer the case. You you go outside with a mask on because of the density of the population that's down there a lot of the time, and also because of the, the fumes that are coming off these trucks. So people in the downtown core are subjected to revving engines, diesel and gas fumes day and night, and the honking of the horns, which is fortunately largely abated at the moment because of a court injunction. But that was intense. It was one of the most disruptive things. I can't even really express to you how how awful it was. And I was very far outside of that core area. So for the people that were living downtown, and there are lots of people in that immediate area, there's huge apartment buildings and condo towers in that area. It, it was insufferable, completely insufferable. The violence so far, I would say, has been fortunately not as bad as people thought it would be or, or, or were fearful that it could be. There have been reports of weapons. I think that the protesters have rightly assessed that that would be an absolute non-starter and would require a very robust response if that were to become sort of an overt thing. Um, but it is not It is not safe to walk downtown. It is particularly not safe if you're a person of color, if you're wearing masks, any of those kinds of things. And it's also very strange, the setup, because you'll be walking down one street and it'll be like very light traffic. And then you'll turn a corner and you'll suddenly be surrounded by trucks and men and barricades. And it's so it's quite surreal. And you can sort of wander into the wrong spot um, with very little warning. And I know that we've seen some of these activities expand other parts of Canada, sometimes with more, sometimes with less success. So we saw a couple of kind of mini versions of what's happening in Ottawa attempt to set up in Toronto and other major Canadian cities. It seems like most of those have kind of collapsed at this point or ended at this point, although I could be mistaken about that, at least some of the bigger ones that I was following. And as Stephanie noted, we also are seeing these efforts to occupy major thoroughfares for commercial traffic, um, you know, kind of an effort to interfere with the broader operations of Canada as a nation, and, and to some extent, the United States as well as, as the main trading partner on the other side of these sorts of crossings. How have those efforts manifested? Are those strategically similar to what's happening in Ottawa? Is it a sit and wait and be a something between an irritant and a blockade, and in some ways a dangerous blockade? Or is there a different sort of strategy and tactic being pursued more or less successfully in these other areas where where the convoy, quote unquote, is operating? It looks to me like the convoy itself is trying to replicate the tactics that they used in downtown Ottawa that sort of roll the trucks in and occupy territory. A lot of cities watched what happened in Ottawa with absolute horror and have rightly taken different policing, made different policing choices around how they were going to deal with the protesters. Um, So in Quebec City, there were reports that they were doing full searches of the vehicles and they weren't going to be allowing them to become stationary at any point in time. We saw civilians blockading routes into Vancouver. And so just really different police strategies, because the problem here really is, is that once the trucks become established in the territory and in the place where they want to be, it's very difficult and some have argued impossible to get them out. And this is very clear in Ottawa. You know, these are not just trucks. These are entire encampments. These have supply lines. They have refueling practices. You know, just walking downtown, if you lift up any of the tarps covering some of the truck beds, you'll see days, weeks worth of food and supplies. So this is sort of the thing that other cities are trying to avoid. 
Yeah, I, c- I can talk a bit about Toronto because I think, uh, as Jess mentioned, there was a real lesson learned, I think, from the Toronto police who looked uh, to looked at what happened in Ottawa and uh, chose a very different strategy. Uh, it, it, I think in Ottawa, they, if we look at some of the media reporting leading up to it or even uh, some of the online chatter leading up to it, there was a very a kind of January 6-ish concern about what might happen in Ottawa. And so, I, you know, I have a lot of MP member, uh, friends who are members of parliament and they were basically saying, you know, they were being, they were receiving emails about how to stay safe. I think the buildings were being protected, but in the process, they kind of forgot about the streets, right? Or they, or they neglected to secure the streets properly. And I think Toronto understood that very clearly. And they basically made it clear that, you, you know, you're happy, you know, we're happy to have you come and protest on foot in front of any government building you like, but you got to, you know, you have to leave the trucks elsewhere. Um, and so we didn't really have a situation of occupation in the same sense. The added problem in Toronto is the downtown core is home to, you know, half a dozen or more hospitals. Uh, some of the key uh, trauma centers, you know, Sick Kids Hospital is downtown. Um, and so that kind of occupation that we're seeing in Ottawa in the, in downtown Toronto would have been absolutely devastating. And so I think Toronto police made a clear decision to say, you know, we're happy to have you come down and uh, protest in any manner you like, except with these massive trucks. And um, and so we've had a different uh, different reality on the ground here for now. That's actually the perfect transition point back to to what I want to come back to you on, Stephanie. And that's this question about how we've seen Canadian officials begin to respond to this. I want to get into the policy response, certainly, um, from the cities, municipalities, and national government that are dealing with it. But I also want to get to the political side of it. How have we seen these events fitting into Canada's political narrative, its political scene between competitive political parties. Are we seeing efforts to co-opt this effort to bring it into a political coalition to capture and write on some of the popular mobilization it still it seems to be achieving with at least some part of the population? Has it proven popular or has there been broader discomfort with what's been happening? So with the broader political scene, it's interesting. I mean, I, I saw some polling about the convoy, which suggested that you know, the vast majority of, of Canadians are against it. I mean, almost 70% versus 30%. But, you know, that was about the goals of the convoy, which is to uh, basically, or at least nominally, get rid of the mask mandate. So I, I, it wasn't really a, a question about the tactics. It was, it was some kind of, it was kind of some lazy polling. But all that to say is that, you know, there may be a, a hardcore of 30% of Canadians that, that actually kind of, of support this. But it, it is really hard to say because the question, I, I think, was poorly phrased. But that being said, uh, for the politicians themselves, I would suggest this is either a magnet or a hot potato, and there doesn't really seem to be much in between. For for the hot potato crowd, I would say it's it's what we've seen at the municipal level is that the they've kind of thrown up their arms and just kind of said this is a, a basically they need the federal government to come in and intervene. They've, they've basically given up all responsibility. It is an election year at the municipal level in Ottawa. The mayor is not running again. So I, I'm not sure to the extent that he's invested in, in, in giving a, a robust leadership response. He may just be wanting to uh, avoid having to spend a lot of time in an inquiry in the future. Um, at the provincial level, this is really interesting. So uh, unlike the United States, it's actually the provinces in Canada that have the most power. You know, we the way our constitution works is that it is a federal system, but the provinces actually have control over over uh, most 
transportation decisions like licenses and things like that, like you would have at the state level in the US, but also education, you know, resources, things like this. So uh, the province, however, has been absent in all of this. Like uh, we, you know, our, our premier is Doug Ford, who is famously the brother of Rob Ford, who is the probably best known as the crack snorting mayor of Toronto, unfortunately. Um, but his brother, who kind of shares a lot of populist sympathies with with his with Rob Ford, um, who has now passed on, is in fact our premier. And he's facing an election in the spring as well, it, really just in a few months. So I strongly suspect that he is afraid to take action because, you know, some of that 30% of Canadians who support this, well, guess what? That's his demographic. So he's put out a few tweets, as I mentioned earlier, but hasn't really taken any action. And finally, we have the federal government who, you know, they've come out, they keep saying that they're engaging. I mean, every day we see the prime minister come out and say he's had a phone call with someone. But beyond this, they've basically said they don't want to deploy the military. Uh, I agree. I think that would be the the wrong decision to to in fact do. And, and that's like a whole other conversation we can have. But, you know, they are cognizant that if the military is deployed, that this is going to be a propaganda coup for the people uh, who are in this protest, who are trying to make the government fall. So I think they're trying to be really, really careful here. And they want to support the municipalities uh, that are that are dealing with these problems, but they don't want to be seen as being too heavy handed or controlling things. So again, we've just kind of had the abdication of responsibilities and and the movement itself has been able to to continue. One of the things I keep pushing for is some kind of administrative law solution to this. I mean, we keep hearing talks about, you know, we need to send police officers. Well, it's not clear where those police officers are coming from. We need to send in uh, military equipment to tow the trucks away. Well, not clear that's going to look very good or that a lot of this military equipment will be able to do so without damaging a lot of historic Ottawa infrastructure. I guess the question I have is like, there's kind of the Al Capone approach to this, which is, you know, not using, say, the police to go after murder or violating prohibition. But like, why why haven't they gone after driver's licenses or insurance? They could very easily uh, just suspend licenses or say, hey, if you're on a bridge in the next three hours, we are going to look into suspending your license. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, non-kinetic options that haven't even been deployed yet. The final thing I'll say here is, is it's, what's interesting to me, and I guess something I've been thinking about, at least from the political perspective, is that you have different political parties. The one that's probably most affected by this is the Conservative Party of Canada, which is probably nominally aligned with probably some of the more centrist elements of the, the Republican Party. But at the same time, there is within that conservative movement a much more populist viewpoint. We've seen a real split in that party. And it kind of reminds me of the Republican Party in 2015, 2016, as it was grappling with what to do with Donald Trump. You know, some people said, well, you know, he's never going to win so we can embrace him and then get his the energy of his supporters. But he ends up taking over the movement. And we have indeed seen our members of parliament from the Conservative Party, particularly from the Western provinces where anti-mandate uh, sentiments are perhaps strongest. Um, go out and meet with the protesters. A former leader of the Conservative Party has been seen multiple times speaking with protesters, posing for pictures and talking to them, knowing full well what the origins of this protest were and the fact that the citizens of Ottawa are literally being tormented and that they're planning on closing bridges and hurting infrastructure. There's a moderate conservative wing that seems to be trying to, to fight against this, but it's not clear if that's actually going to be the case. So 
that's a lot of information. I guess all of this to say is that my concern is that this is not only undermining faith in all levels of government in the eyes of Canadian public, but it also may have really serious implications for our political parties moving forward. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is 
one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to what Stephanie was saying about the the level of federal interest in this. So while the federal government has been really pushing back to make this a policing issue, particularly an Ottawa policing issue, there's a lot of interest from politicians at the federal level in terms of studying what exactly is happening. Um, there's lots of concern about the potential extremist elements of this, such that they're studying the issue at our Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security as we speak. They've called FinTrack Canada's Financial Intelligence Unit in to, to talk about particularly the crowdfunding issue and how that is or is not covered by our existing legislation. And they're particularly seized with the possibility of foreign influence on this campaign. Well, actually, let me come back to you on that question, Jessica, because that's another big part of this and a part that I think is at least from an outsider's perspective, seem to be getting more play and attention as this crisis has dragged on, which is the outsider element. We Obviously, there is some sort of financial support coming for this effort. It's not possibly, I guess, it's it could be entirely self-funded, but whole pallets of food, fuel generators, the things that are required to maintain an occupation like that aren't cheap. Um, so at least some sort of organizational effort uh, and seems most likely some sort of source of funds coming to this. You certainly have uh, American political leaders that have been involved, particularly in recent days, vocally voicing support for the effort, Pres former President Trump being probably the highest profile, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, um, people who are critical of U.S. vaccination policies doubling down, uh, former President Trump, although it's worth noting Trump himself 
does urge people to get vaccinated, but it takes other issues of vaccination policies, um, unlike some other people uh, who have voiced support for the convoy. Former President Trump has come out and said, uh, you know, called Canadian leaders socialists and extreme left-wing government and voice support for this group and then encourage them to come down to Washington, D.C. to do the same in the United States. I want to get back to that possibility a little later about what this all means for the United States. But for Canada, for what's happening there now, to what extent do we know or do we have any sense whether this is the percent to which this is a a homegrown operation, genuinely generally grassroots, and an astroturf operation, something that's getting external influence, external inputs. No doubt, there's some element of both, but but do we have a sense about how strong each of those factors has been in the emergence of this of this campaign? I think the clearest element of foreign support for the for the campaign has really been, as you described it, that those foreign influencers, so former President Trump, uh, Elon Musk, other people tweeting their support for the protest. This is very clear. This has happened. Um, it has probably driven quite a bit more interest towards the protest and probably some support as well. The interesting thing here, though, is on the financing side. So there's obviously been a few crowdfunders that have been established to fund these protests. The first one that was established on GoFundMe raised, I can't even remember now, I think it was five or six million dollars, maybe more. And what really led to this whole conversation around foreign influence on this campaign was the number of donations that appeared to be coming from outside of Canada. And I say appeared very specifically because there's no identity verification that happens on the public side of these crowdfunding campaigns. So you can really write anything and people have been writing anything. I think somebody gave some money in my name, which was a real delight for me. And, you know, they've been giving money in, in people's names who really obviously are not supporting the convoy. But then, so it makes it really difficult for us to fully assess what is happening in terms of foreign support. My own view is that there's very clearly some foreign support. We see that particularly in the Bitcoin transactions. There's also Bitcoin fundraisers, of course, because that's how these things go, that have come come in from US donors. So this this whole foreign influence piece, though, is really being picked up by the media and amplified extensively because I think there's a there's a real tendency in Canada to see threats and extremism as external to Canada and and really try to put that on other people when in reality, this is at the very least a joint project between Canadian and U.S. extremists. Certainly, a, a, a serious number of Canadian extremists are involved in this, but it's also international in scope. There seems to be lots of support coming in from other people around the world. And there's, as we talked about earlier already, those other types of convoys springing up around the world, New Zealand and Australia, for two examples. I think the other aspect of the foreign uh, foreign influence, of course, is the media, right? I think Jess touched on this as well. Is is I remember thinking very uh, specifically, like when I saw B.J. Dichter, uh, who was one of the organizers of the of the convoy, go on Tucker Carlson, and he was very excited to be on Tucker Carlson um, because you know people like people like him don't uh, don't have that kind of megaphone usually. And Tucker was praising him and praising the movement. And I remember thinking, you know, this is going to change all of these people's lives, right? At the and sure enough, money started pouring in from donors in the U.S., probably donors all over Canada. Uh, you had all of these organizers who used to be fairly fringe individuals with, with you know, moderate, small social media followings basically skyrocket. So a lot, you know, now if you go on Facebook and Instagram, Telegram, they, they have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of followers. They've become uh, minor celebrities in this movement. People try to find them on the street and shake their hand. And so I think... 
the way in which the trucker convoy was woven into broader populist anti-government uh, sentiment in the U.S., uh, kind of led by uh, Fox News. Uh, the Ma Fox News megaphone is also an important uh, component to this. I think Media Matters just put out a report that said Fox News devoted almost nine hours of coverage to the trucker convoy between January 18th and February 9th, right? And um, and a good chunk of that, or a small chunk of that, was also Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson amplifying it to their to their tens of millions of viewers. And and so I think that that is also an important component to kind of see how uh, basically celebrities were made and influencers were made uh, of these organizers overnight. Well, so Mar, let me ask you then. You know that narrative you just put forward brings out the fact that there's a lot of motivations behind what's happening here. There is stated objectives, often which are very grand, at least from the ones I've seen, of some organizers essentially saying, you know, we want at least the repeal of vaccination policies, which would be a major policy reversal, obviously, uh, would also involve the U.S. potentially changing its vaccination policies to have, have the impact they want in terms of cross-border trade, but also to various extents, dissolution of the current Canadian government, imposition of all sorts of big policy swings. These are some of the official demands, which seem just well beyond the realm of reality of anything achievable. And that certainly would raise legitimacy questions if somehow they were implemented through this sort of mechanism. What, though, are the actual objectives of the people involved with this? And what does that tell us about what the end game might look like? Is this something that continues precisely because it has become a focus of celebrity and fundraising and a vehicle for this sort of mobilization that once the novelty wears off and those lines of support dry up will begin to lose its appeal? Or is there something more self-sustaining about this that's more likely to keep it going perhaps far longer um, than even the public interest in it may sustain? What does an endgame begin to look like? And, and what is it the actors driving this are, are ultimately hoping to get out of it that might lead them to to decide, all right, we've gotten what we need out of this. Let's move on to whatever the next thing might be. Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think I think the more I watch, more I watch them, and the more I watch their rhetoric and their goals, um, the more it's kind of clear, you know, from a sociological perspective, that it, it's it they're getting meaning and purpose just out of being out there and yelling and honking and being with each other. Right? They wanted to feel. They wanted to feel like they have like-minded supporters and like-minded people around the country and around the world, uh, that this kind of uh, anti-mandate, anti-lockdown sentiment wasn't something that they themselves were holding, that it wasn't just, you know, kind of them in their in their house kind of anxious about this, that they this was a kind of broad base of support. And so I think they've proved that to themselves by being out there and being able to attract all this attention and money and people uh, onto the streets. And so that that part of it, I think, is important. It's not usually talked about, but the, the importance of the protest moment itself uh, for people and for, for, for these movements is, is quite important. In terms of their end goal, um, it, it's not entirely clear, right? They, they, they've ranged from um, getting rid of the mandates to the dissolution of the Canadian government, as you've said, um, and and everything in between. And so because the goals, I don't think they've thought through the goals very specifically, aside from uh, these lofty, uh, lofty descriptions, um, that impacts how you approach them, right? That, that impacts how people can negotiate with them or whether there's even a negotiating potential and how law enforcement should deal with them, et cetera. So, you know, there's a, there's a range of people out there, right, who are, who are sometimes even pro-vaccine but anti-mandate um, and on the one hand uh, and on the other hand who are kind of rabidly conspiratorial who believe that the whole uh, coronavirus is a hoax, that the vaccine is designed to enslave our children, that Fauci is a liar, 
uh, and so on and so forth. And and so the, because it's such a diverse uh, audience of people with a diverse set of goals, it's not entirely clear how this ends. I think um, one of the ways it ends potentially is through kind of internal factionalization um, as they begin to maybe fight over money or fight over um, who takes leadership of, of, of this movement overall, or it ends very badly in violence and mass arrests, right? And I think, um, uh, I don't know if I see any other solution really. You know, Steph mentioned the, the kind of administrative Al Capone style approach, which I think is is important to try out also. But um, at the moment, I'm kind of at a loss for how this eventually comes to an end. One of the other things that I think is worth mentioning here is that there are long-term preparations within this movement for what happens after the protest. They've established a, a not, not-for-profit organization to be the beneficiary of the funds from their their new crowdfunding campaign, their Give, Send, Go campaign, which has now raised over $8 million American. So this was established to be the legitimate beneficiary of that money, but the purpose of the organization is really advocacy against the government, against mandates, as they call it, against social credit systems, which are they describe as rewards and punishments for government compliance. So these are really about challenging the legitimacy of the state over the long term. And this money will also very likely be used for the legal defense of some of the individuals involved. And Give, Send, Go has given no indication whatsoever that they're planning on closing down this fundraiser. In fact, they've they've basically come out and said the opposite. Um, so the only way that this organization isn't going to get these funds are, is really if there's some sort of uh, legal action against the crowdfunder itself or against the individuals. So this, this amount of money is really the kind of thing that sets up the movement for really long-term disruptive activity in Canada. Well, Stephanie, that brings us back to your proposal about administrative law solutions, uh, which is, I guess, one end of a spectrum of solutions, the other end being potential military action or, uh, you know, strong police action, kinetic solutions. Give us a sense about where some of the policy solutions you see fall on the spectrum, elaborating a little bit on your prior comments. Like, what are the, what is the toolkit that policymakers have available to them and, and what is the direction they seem to be leaning and approaching this to the extent we know? And, and I'd be curious about your perspectives as well as Amar and Jessica about which of these is the, the logical one to go to next? What What is the solutions that seems to offer the biggest return on risk and investment uh, at this particular stage? So that's a really good question. And I would actually, you know, acknowledge like Amar's point there that, yeah, not every one of these guys is going to pay attention to parking tickets and fines and license suspensions, right? I mean, there is a hard core of individuals in here that, you know, maybe, maybe willing to, you know, go pretty far in, in terms of achieving what they think is liberty. And, and we keep seeing this narrative out there. So what can we do? Well, one of the things I, I I noticed was that on Sunday night, I was watching some of the live streams because, you know, brain cells are overrated. And what I saw was that the police moved in on one of the camps, a place called Coventry Road. Uh, and they have a, a big camp there, a logistics camp. And, uh, you know, very different from the you know, I'm going to say party-like atmosphere downtown. I mean, it's only, it's a very selective party and, and definitely not a party for for the residents of Ottawa. But like, you know, downtown we've seen bouncy castles and, and you know, donuts being given out and free coffee, free food, stuff like that. This logistics center is on Coventry Road is is much more important, I think, to the movement. And when they went in and just confiscated some fuel, and some supplies, I mean, and it wasn't even the vast majority necessarily of, of the fuel and supplies. It sent a signal to the movement and they were shocked. 
the people who were live streaming it, they said, you know, they, they were kind of surprised that, that this had happened. Uh, they were trying to justify it to themselves. They were trying to rationalize it to themselves. Uh, they were, you know, they were saying, oh, well, the police officers, they're really with us, but it, you know, they had to follow the orders that they were given. And you could see that they didn't want to do this and all these different kinds of things. There was an injunction brought forward by a woman in her 20s, a very brave woman, I have to say, who, you know, said that, you know, the noise was was too loud and it, the honking needs to stop. Well, they took it to court and sure enough, the honking, it ha- look, it hasn't ceased entirely. Um, you still hear some honking, but it's really dramatically reduced. So just doing basic policing seems to either have an impact on taking some of the energy out of the movement or, you know, having an effect. And this is why I'm kind of surprised we just haven't seen more basic policing. The police will often talk about, uh, you know, resourcing issues. And yeah, it's, it's hard. We're talking about large areas of space with a police force that is no doubt by this point exhausted. But much earlier, you know, much more could have been done with regards to parking tickets, noise, all kinds of things like this that, that, that we could have seen uh, the police doing. Now, one thing I will note, or at least acknowledge, is that the convoy itself is, is they're crafty, right? They're, they're crafty. They may have conspiratorial worldviews. But when the police said that they were banning people from carrying uh, gas and diesel downtown and jerry cans, all of a sudden, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people start showing up carrying jerry cans, some of which just have water in it, some of which are empty some of which have diesel and are able to, to sneak through. It's like uh, a kind of game of a uh, big game of cat and mouse. And this delighted the convoy, right? So they, they can adapt to some of these methods. But, you know, I guess one of the things that really frustrates me is that basic policing and basic policy options haven't been tried and do seem to have an effect, uh, at least on the energy and response of the convoy. So, I think I mentioned this earlier, but the provinces themselves have the authority to revoke licenses, handle insurance issues, all these different kinds of things. The Premier of Ontario could basically say, look, anyone on a bridge in the next you know, three hours, we're going to look at suspending your license. And I don't understand why this hasn't really been sorted out. So, okay, so let's go to more kinetic options that have been put out there. So Ottawa police, they say they're at their max, that, they, that they're out of forces. So there's a, a couple other sources of forces for the Ottawa police. Some of it is uh, regional. So uh, other townships or other cities have sent their municipal police forces to Ottawa to help bolster. But as this campaign, as this convoy spreads throughout the country, that might not be viable in the long run. There are uh, the Ontario Provincial Police, but we really haven't seen a surge. I mean, they may just be busy doing their 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 policing work, but we haven't really seen a, a, a large number of, of Ontario Provincial Police come into the city. And then finally, the federal government has said that it, it will be providing something like some, somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 RCMP officers. Uh, again, I, I'm not sure, and it, Jess has actually been the one in the crowds. I'm not sure we've actually even seen that yet. So no surge in policing has really, I, I'm not sure at this point if a surge in policing is actually possible because it, it may just be the fact that there's not enough police officers in Canada really to, to handle this as, as we go forward, which is kind of a, a really scary thought having, having actually voiced it. Then we get into more serious options. Famously in Canada, the prime minister's father, so Pierre Trudeau, 
in response to a terrorist attack uh, or a series of terrorist incidents in the 1970s, invoked something called the War Measures Act, which brought in essentially martial law to the country, which allowed the military to come in and uh, protect certain assets and individuals in the country. And it was, you know, uh, looking back at that time, you can see photos of the military just kind of in the streets and in the streets of Ottawa, trying to prevent uh, more politicians from from being kidnapped by this group. And, you know, it was it was not the most democratic thing. It's often celebrated as a moment in Canadian history where, you know, Pierre, Pierre Trudeau uh, stood up to to what was actually a terrorist movement and and took action against it. But, you know, in order to do so, he had to really enact some of Canada's most strongest laws at the time. And and the other thing I should say there is that I don't think the FLQ, the Fédération de du Libération du Québec, apologies for my uh, bad accent there, uh, which was the movement responsible for this, didn't have 30% support. Right. So it was a much easier thing to do. Uh, today, we no longer have the War Measures Act. It was seen as, as too much of a, a draconian uh, measure. So we, it's been replaced with the Emergencies Act, which is, again, federal legislation. In order for it to be invoked at the federal level, however, you would need to have crises in more than one province. Right. And, and then federal jurisdiction can kind of come down. Otherwise, the attorney general of a province can request that the Emergencies Act be invoked and that they can make an appeal to the uh, federal authorities. Now, that hasn't happened. Uh, neither of those options have happened yet, but they're on the table and they may allow for a military response. The final response here would be the National Defense Act, which does, uh, again, allow the uh, Canadian military to provide aid to the civilian power, particularly in a, in a civilian crisis. So, you know, on the one hand, it could be to, to bring in the military to help contain the protests, to do actual policing. I don't think anyone wants to see that. I just think that would just look so bad. But there may be other kinds of support that could be offered. A lot of people have, you know, mentioned to me on Twitter that, you know, military equipment could be used to to actually remove the trucks themselves. That it wouldn't be pretty, that probably damage the trucks, which of course are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that it may actually be an incentive in and of themselves to remove those trucks. But the, you know, again, the issue here is 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 this a step that we want to take? Um, one of the problems Ottawa is currently facing, which I, I don't think has been mentioned yet, is that the actual towing companies, which work for the cities, have either decided not to take part in this because they support the movement, uh, or because they're being intimidated into not actually moving supplies or, or convoys or anything uh, or trucks for for the city. So a lot I think the, the tow truck companies just want to stay out of this. So we may need some kind of government resources for this. So lots of options, some of them much more severe than others. But it's clear to me, and you know, I think Jess, maybe Yamar, you want to come in on this. It's pretty clear to me that the federal government does not want to be seen as being heavy-handed. As as Jess mentioned earlier, they are quite keen to push this away and turn this into a police issue, not because they don't care. The federal government is directly impacted by this, but I think for all the reasons I've kind of mentioned, that it, it would be seen as potentially a propaganda victory, it could be seen as draconian, and the municipalities and provinces really need to step up and look after themselves. And as well, I think there's a broader concern here. You know, I've, I've been hearing a lot from activist communities that I know 
that you know there, there's there's always also a racial component here that is kind of irritating people, right? In in the sense of like we had BLM protests in Canada, we had indigenous uh, blockades before, and they were met quite quickly, often with arrests and and brutal police responses, right? And 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 so the idea that you could just kind of drive your trucks from across the country, park them in downtown Ottawa. And there's literally no response except confiscating some jerry cans. I think is is you know from a from some of the activists that I know in the country, they're you know <laughs> obviously pointing to a kind of uh, racial question. Is like what is what is up with that, right? And and so is that is that because there are some is some support for the convoy within Ottawa Police or within the policing services in Canada, or is it just that they didn't anticipate that a bunch of uh, people from across the country could do this. I, th- I think that that's an important element uh, that's going to um, have a lasting impact as well in terms of how policing or how police forces are trusted in this country. The other thing I'll say is um, th- there are a bunch of children, right, in 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 the convoy, uh, sleeping in in the cabs of these trucks and so on, which is also an important element to take in mind. I'm, and I'm assuming Ottawa Police uh, is concerned about that as well in terms of any kind of heavy-handed action that they might be thinking about that. Uh, I, th- I forget what the percentage was, but one in four one in four trucks in downtown Ottawa um, has kids basically sleeping in them, um, which is not, a, not, not, not something to take lightly as well. And so I think all of that is also fa- factoring into the police response. Just to, to talk briefly about some of the things that Amar raised here that are so important. Yeah, the, the the role of children in this is really quite gross. To be to be frank about it, you know, you go downtown Ottawa and you see parents encouraging trucks to honk their horns in defiance of the injunction. You see children running around in the the occupied space. They should be in school. The diesel fumes, the the gas fumes from all of the trucks being engines being revved all the time. It's really quite an atrocious place to, to have children. That's certainly contributing to the, I think, some of the reluctance in terms of how hard the police are going to go after some of this activity. But I also wonder a little bit about exactly what Amar was talking about earlier. It's inconceivable to me that any other group of people in this country could have broadcast their intentions so clearly called for the overthrow of the Canadian government and be met with so little resistance from the police of Ottawa and and frankly the RCMP and and the OPP and other police services as well there's there's literally no other scenario that i could imagine that could have had this kind of reaction or complete inaction from the police force um so i think that he's very right to point that out i was also asked the other day about whether or not this was an intelligence failure on the part of the police and i i can't even conceive of how this could be an intelligence failure because the protesters the convoy was broadcasting their intentions for several weeks beforehand you could physically see the money being raised on the crowdfunding site to support this convoy and it, it was very clear that they were going to have the ability to stay in ottawa and and had the intention to do so over the long term we're unfortunately running low on time for this conversation. There's still so many more aspects of it to cover, but I want to put one last question to all three of you. Coming out of what we know of this experience so far, what is the big lesson that we should take away, whether that is the we being Canadian officials or people dealing with a specific scenario in Canada, or perhaps more, even more relevantly, at least for many lawfare listeners, those outside of Canada who are looking what's happening there and seeing so many parallels and similarities with political movements happening in their own country that it's not hard to imagine 
an Ottawa like convoy, you know, driving to downtown Washington, D.C. and trying to pursue a similar sort of action. How should people be thinking about this and what should they be preparing for coming out of it? What are the big lessons we should take away? Amar, let me start with you. I mean, I, th- I think much like what Jessica just said, um, I spend more time than is probably healthy in these platforms that these people are on. Um, I, I swim in this content a lot and, and Jess and Steph know this well because I often send it to them. <laughs> but uh, but I, th- I think what was obvious leading into this and much like what was uh, much like all the other hospital protests and things that we've seen in the past in Toronto and other cities in Canada is they have they've been talking about this for a long time, right? They they were very clear about what they were doing, they were clear about uh, what their objectives were, and and so uh, it's just it's just very surprising to me that this wasn't this wasn't seen coming. Uh, my broader concern is whether law enforcement has even has eyes on these alternative media spheres um, where a lot of these conversations are happening. I know I know RCMP and CSIS are or at least CSIS is watching these spaces, but is what they're seeing and what they're learning about uh, this online content actually trickling down to frontline police officers, frontline uh, security guards at hospitals, at vaccination centers. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been worried about that for a long time. Is I, I, I don't get the impression that what is happening online and what these organizers are talking about in the online space uh, is actually trickling down to the people who are going to meet them on the street uh, when they actually show up. It's kind of kept at a uh, intelligence level or uh, federal law enforcement level with some moderate training, but I, I, I think we've seen an uptick in calls for violence, in assassinations, in kidnappings uh, of, of uh, you know, people delivering vaccines and all sorts of things that um, I, I remember uh, texting a friend of mine who uh, works in, in the hospitals downtown, and I, I basically said, do, do you think your security guard at, in, in, uh, in the emergency room of your hospital has any idea what's going on in, in the online space about a protest that's happening tomorrow at that very same hospital. And I don't think they do, right? And and that's a, that's a problem. And so I, I think this convoy, I think, has also brought that message home is that there needs to be a bit more easy knowledge sharing. Uh, I know that's a cliche term by now, but some sort of knowledge sharing between what's happening in, in, in these communities in the online space and then uh, people who are actually going to meet them on the ground. Jessica, let me turn to you. Yeah, I'm going to be a little contentious here because I think that one of the big lessons that we need to, or something that we need to reflect on certainly is the foreign funding piece. It is legal in Canada to have foreign donations to political activities, not to political parties. But if there is a significant amount of foreign funding coming in for this protest, and I I think that there's pretty decent evidence that there's at least some, I think we need to have a conversation about whether or not this is something that we find acceptable in Canada, whether it's okay for foreign interests, whether they're individuals, entities, corporations, even states, to be influencing Canadian politics with this amount of money. Of course, that has a lot of implications for other activist groups and other causes. But given the scope of what we've seen, I think this is a very real and pressing issue that we need to address. Stephanie, let me hand it over to you for the last word. I guess what I want to know is, is this going to be the rise of a populist movement in Canada? This is really going to be interesting. I mean, the protesters had some success here, as I noted earlier, because they really uh, lit a spark that caught fire among a population that's exhausted uh, emotionally, you know, suffering mental health issues, all these different kinds of things. But and, and, and as Jess noted, there's now this movement 
which is well-funded. They've pulled off, even if it was unplanned, and an event like we've never seen before in Canada. And they're now well-networked. They've gotten international attention, right? This movement has the potential to absolutely fundamentally change the Canadian political landscape. And I don't know where this is going to go. Now, that being said, the people in this movement are fractious. There's a lot of infighting. And when there's millions of dollars at stake, controlling those millions of dollars is going to potentially be not just something that can mobilize support, but maybe something that actually could cause division among these organizers. So we don't yet know what the long-term consequences are. I suppose the most disturbing thing to me really is we have a movement that at its core is comprised of extremists. And as Amar noted, um, I think in an earlier discussion, these politicians still chose to stand with them. That is hurtful. That is uh, something that, that does kind of keep me up in all of this because um, this could go on for months. This could go on. And, and by this, I mean the, the convoy. It could keep coming back and back and back. They have the resources and the networking. But also the fact that politicians saw a movement that wasn't that, where you know extremists are, are very clearly intermingling with a larger population and didn't feel that they needed to speak up and didn't feel they needed to challenge that. And that, I think, is a, a very bad sign of things to come. Fortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there. But Stephanie, Jessica, Amar, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and share the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. To gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast, and other benefits, please consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.